Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts in chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, as we are studying through the book of Acts, uh, when we uh, began in this study, I, um, I prayed and asked the Lord that God would use this book to stir our hearts and our minds concerning the work of the church. And uh, there's no doubt as we've been studying through the book of Acts, there seems to be a, a strong emphasis on preaching the gospel uh, to those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've um, uh, basically gone through the first uh, 12 chapters of Acts, which is a focus on primarily the ministry of Peter, uh, of uh, Peter, and also the church of Jerusalem. We know that in Acts 8, the persecution arose, uh, the stoning of Stephen, and then believers, many believers in Jerusalem were scattered. And then by the time you reach Acts chapter 9, you begin to see churches, plural, not just one church in Jerusalem, but many churches that are being started as a result of the persecution. One of those in Acts chapter 11 is the church at Antioch in Syria. So if you look at a map, at the map there in your notes, uh, you have Jerusalem on the bottom right corner in the green, which is Judea. And then if you go straight up in Syria, at the top of uh, Syria there in the red, you have Antioch of Syria. Now that's not to be, um, I guess, uh, confounded with Antioch of Asia, which is in the orange part there in the center of the map. And so in Acts chapter 13 is really a transition from an emphasis on the church at Jerusalem, the ministry of Peter, and now we're going to look from Acts chapter 13 through the remainder of this book, an emphasis on the missionary work of the church of Antioch, primarily through the Apostle Paul, but there was others who started churches. You know, when Paul, when you read through the epistles of Paul, it is evident that other churches were started outside of his ministry. Uh, we know that Barnabas and Paul went their separate ways after the first missionary journey, and so no doubt Barnabas continued to be involved in church planning. And so, uh, but we, we have this record of Paul here, and we are continuing in Acts chapter 13, and we, we noted last time uh, some, um, I guess, some foundational principles that laid out the groundwork for the great missionary work of the church of Antioch. And so we come here to verse 4, after we find here that God... Uh, decided to separate uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work that he had called them. We find the believers agreeing with that, recognizing God moving and uh, pressing forward. And so we get to chapter uh, 13, verse 4, and we begin reading. We'll read down uh, to verse 12. The Bible says, So they, that's uh, Barnabas and Saul, we're going to find that that is actually John Mark is with them. So there is, I believe, more than just Paul and Barnabas. I believe actually there's other more, more people even than John Mark that accompanied uh, Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey. We find that throughout the book of Acts, Luke being the author, sometimes you find him present uh, with Paul on those journeys as well. So notice verse 4, So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia, and from thence sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the isle of Patmos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose surname, uh, whose name was Bar-Jesus. 
which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God, and Elimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Put another way, he stared at him. And said, O full of all subtility and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the miracle. No, no, that's not what he says. Being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. As we look through this text here, something jumps out at me, and, and often we, we look passages like this, we are familiar with Acts chapter 8, we read of another sorcerer, Simon, by name there. In Samaria, we read of another sorcerer, and sometimes, if we're not careful, we get to those passages, and we're like, wow, look, a, a sorcerer. But really, as we look at our text, there's something that is repeated here, and I pointed out there in your notes in, in those verses. Notice verse 5, when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God. The word of God, that's what they preached. Notice verse 7, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the what? The word of God. And notice by the end of this ordeal, we read in verse 12, that the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed because uh, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. I want to preach this, uh, this uh, morning on this, astonished at the Word of God. Astonished at the Word of God. As we look here through uh, these uh, pages here, it's really the same thing that happened in, in Acts chapter 8. It is evident here that as they... Uh, come to uh, this part here when you look at the map in your notes, Antioch of Syria, they are going to leave and go to Salamis, which is on the island of Cyprus. And then they're going to go cross the island over to Paphos. And then after that, they're going to go and sail uh, to Perga. And so we'll go, but right now here we find ourselves, according to our text in verse 4 and 5, when they're sent forth unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus, so that's the island you find here on your map. And then they, uh, and when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God. Uh, notice in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also jaunted their minister. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, and so unto Paphos, and so we find here that they're going to cross. So where is the sorcerer? He's in uh, Paphos, and notice they found a certain sorcerer a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. And so we come here to this text, and we, as we proceed here through this text, we learn some things about the impact of the Word of God. That's really what we find here. The impact 
of the Word of God. We, As we read throughout the book of Acts thus far, we've been impressed by all that has happened, but there has been one emphasis throughout all of this. We think, what, what is the, the might of the church? The, the power of the church, where is it found? When we read through the book of Acts, what is it that was amazing about what took place in the book of Acts? Well, I think we could all agree up to this point that what's been amazing in the book of Acts is that they've been persecuted, they've been stoned, they've been imprisoned, they've been threatened, they've been beaten, and despite all of these things, the Word of God is still making inroads. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip goes to Samaria, there, there was a sorcerer who bewitched the people that the people thought that what the sorcerer was doing was the power of God. Here again, the, the deputy of uh, uh, Paphos was, was influenced by the sorcerer. And so we think about sorcerer as someone who, who does uh, some, uh, in some measure some miracles to impress the people, whether it is trickery or whether it is real. Uh, it does not matter, but the people are clinging to them. And yet when the Word of God shows up, things change. The Word of God, despite all of the opposition... And the opposition came in various forms, still made inroads in the first century, and I contend that the Word of God can still make inroads in the 21st century. But that is what has to be at the forefront, the Word of God. I want to bring your attention to four points as we look at our text, and we'll take this text chronologically and then I'll give you some blanks you can fill out in your notes. And I, I, the reason I put your notes together is because I want you to have the map. But then I thought, it's just a map, so I might as well just give them the notes. All right? Uh, so you can have that and, and keep that uh, for, uh, for later for your benefit. So notice, first of all, as we think about, all right, what are the elements that we find throughout this passage that caused the uh, believers there to be astonished by the Word of God. Well, what are the elements we find in our text? First of all, let's consider the obedience in verse 4 and 5. As we see in verse 4, the Bible says, So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. What I find here in our text is, first of all, uh, the obedience of both, um, we find here certainly Barnabas and Saul, but also we read in verse 5 of John, who was uh, accompanying Barnabas and Saul. And what we notice in our text is, first of all, notice in verse 4 and 5, first of all, their obedience is seen in the departing. Now, Now, this may seem trivial, but again, in the first three verses, the, the Holy Ghost is moving, and the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And, and the believers there in the church, they recognize God's call upon uh, Barnabas and Saul to send them out and to start churches, and they're going to do that. And the Bible says that they were, in verse 4, they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost, but then the Bible tells us that they departed. You know what that means? They obeyed. You see, the Holy Ghost moved in the church and He dealt in the hearts of those who were in the church and the Holy Ghost said, I want you to do this and the Bible tells us they did it. Now, now this may seem basic and trivial, but the truth is how often does the Spirit of God speak to us and we don't do it? You see, 
What what brings about by the end of the of the section we just read, by the end of verse twelve, we find a deputy who is astonished at the word of God, and the truth is. There's going to be no preaching of the word. There's going to be no astonishment of the word of God if first of all the servants don't obey and leave. Now in Antioch, everything is well. The church is growing. People are being added to the church. Paul and Barnabas both have a position where they're able to teach and preach in the word of God. We saw that in chapter 11 and, and ch- uh, chapter 12. And so we find here as they're, uh, they're, they're moving here, it's not like they, they, they needed to leave, but the Spirit of God moved in their hearts to, to, and they obeyed that. And we see their obedience in the departing. And then we also see their obedience in the preaching. Notice verse 5, And when they had sailed, uh, then when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And so here we find here that, remember, we read in... Verse 2 of the same chapter, that the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And so we ask ourselves, okay, well what is that work? When the Spirit of God says, I have a work for you to do, it doesn't specify to us what the work is. But it seems that they know. Because when they get to Salamis, what do they do? They preach the Word of God. As a matter of fact, you through chapter 13 and chapter 14, they seem to do that. Preach the Word of God. Say, Pastor, we're in the 21st century. That stuff is boring today. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, if we're going to make a difference in the 21st century, it's going to be made in the same way that it was done in the 1st century. By the Word of God. Uh, And so it is a shame that people who say that they're involved in the work of God, uh, it's almost like the Word of God has been set aside in a corner where uh, you kind of give a little uh, 10 minute in church, uh, a little sermonette, uh, just to appease, just to say that you read some portion of the Word of God. It's uh, not the emphasis anymore. It becomes a side note in the church. And their obedience here is seen in their preaching. And, And by the way, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. This would be the place of opposition. This would be perhaps the, and by the way, that's the pattern, they always did that. Now, uh, it, it resulted in two ways. For example, Thessalonica, or you, uh, it, uh, some, someone put it this way, that wherever Paul went, there was either a, a revival that broke out or a riot. And that's true. And so they go to the most difficult place, uh, there in Salamis, they preach in the synagogue uh, the Word of God. Uh, but the emphasis here is not on the preaching as much as it is on the Word of God. In other words, when Paul and Barnabas got up, they said, this is what God says in His Word. Now, obviously, in the book of Acts, when you read the messages of the first century apostles, they primarily used the Old Testament because they did not have the New. Now, they were, many of them inspired by the Holy Ghost, moved by the Holy Ghost to pen the words down of the New Testament passage we have. But if you... Study all the messages in the book of Acts. They are just, uh, they are just uh, uh, oozing of Old Testament Scripture. They preach the Word of God. They convince the Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so their obedience is seen in their departing. It is seen in their preaching. But also in verse 5, 
At the end it says, and they had also John to their minister. Their obedience is seen in the assisting. Now, I've really not ever paid attention to that because you read through chapter 13, chapter 14, you either preach the word of God out of Lystra and Derby, uh, Paul was uh, a stone left for dead. There's a lot of action packed in chapter 13 and chapter 14. They established churches. They ordained elders in every church. There's wonderful things happening, but often we, we um, miss over some important details, and this is an important detail at the end of verse 5. John is with Barnabas and Saul. And the Bible says, John, notice, to their minister. You know what they'll tell us about John? John did not do any of the preaching. You know what he did do? He ministered to Barnabas and Saul. He was alongside. He was, notice, the, as uh, Paul and Barnabas were preaching in the synagogue, uh, what, was, uh, uh, what was John doing? And we asked, well, what does that mean? He ministered to them. Well, uh, probably it has to do with uh, if, uh, if they, there was a time that uh, they needed to get some food, they would go out and get some food. Uh, or if they had to do some menial tasks, that John was there to do it. Or perhaps it could even be that while they were preaching, John was praying. In other words, he ministered to them. He encouraged them. He, he served them. Most like you see, remember when Jesus Christ was uh, uh, talked to the woman at the well, he instructed the disciples to go in the city and to get some meat. And they did so. And so perhaps John Mark has the same role. He is, uh, he is basically following Barnabas and Saul wherever they go, and he is helping them. And the truth is the work of God does not just take place because of Paul and Barnabas. It takes place because there's a church behind these people, but there's also there's others who went along with them and encouraged them and ministered to them and helped them. Amen. When you read in uh, 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 Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions a bunch of names of people who've helped them through the ministry, uh, some who housed them, some who fed him, uh, some who uh, were in prison with him, uh, some who ministered to his needs, uh, some even uh, that just brought a coat and parchments to him. In other words, there's a lot of people that were involved in the work of God. And so the obedience is not just seen in the departing, in the preaching, but also in the assisting. Evidently, there are other believers from the church of Antioch that went with Paul and Barnabas who were also involved in the work. It may not have been the visible, prominent work that we read about, but nonetheless an important work. You know, there is no doubt that many of those men and women who came alongside Paul and Barnabas were a, a great deal of encouragement to them in the work of God. You read Paul's epistles, he makes that very clear. So we see here the obedience... In three ways, but then we also see the opportunity. You see, and, and we build on this here because obedience brings about what? It brings about opportunity. You see, often I think we want opportunity to do something for God, but we don't want to obey. We want the opportunity first. Now remember, the goal here was not, the, 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 the obedience part was not, all right, go to Salamis, preach, There'll be people converted. You'll start a church. This is how many people. No, they didn't know. They do the work. And so they left. And then now we find as they leave, they're obeying God. Now opportunities open up as they're obeying God. Verse 6 and 7. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet. So notice here. Uh, notice the language here. That's why I say it's an opportunity. 
Notice, when they had gone through, so as they're going through, the Bible says, they found a certain sorcerer. The point I'm making is if they never obeyed, they would have never gone through and they would have never found an opportunity. He was a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, verse 7, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Now, the first place where they went, we just read here uh, in Salamis, they went to the synagogue. Nobody requested them to be there, but they went there to preach the gospel there. But when they go to Paphos, the deputy says, Hey, I, I, I want to hear the word of God. You see, an opportunity opened up that they would not had had they not first obeyed. Uh, now, I want you to notice here that the opportunity did two things. First of all, uh, there's your blank here. They had an opportunity to confront the deceiver. Do you notice here that's what we read in, in verse 6? They had gone through the island of Paphos. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose surname was Bar-Jesus. And so here, notice, their obedience gave them an opportunity to do what? They had here an opportunity to confront a deceiver. You see, in our world, and here what we find here is obviously in the island of, of, uh, of uh, Cyprus. Where's my notes here? They were in here somewhere. It's gone. You have the map, right? It's right here. So notice, they, they go to the island... They go to Salamis, and so then they, they uh, cross over the island unto Paphos, and so they get there, and when they get there, uh, they see here, they meet a sorcerer, and as we read the text, we find out that the sorcerer is closely uh, associated with the deputy. It seems that when Barnabas and Saul are giving the word of God to the deputy because he asked them to come, the sorcerer is right there by the deputy, speaking in his ear. He is right there trying to, as we'll see later in our text, trying to pervert the right way of God, trying to keep him away from a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice here what their obedience, what the opportunity was created by their obedience. They had an opportunity to confront the deceiver. And so by the way, as a church, we obey God so that we have the opportunity to do what? To confront the deceivers in the world. There's a lot of deceivers. There are a lot of men who have called disciples after themselves. There are a lot of people in this world that are confused. We just met on Wednesday. We met a young lady who had a child, and she says she went to church uh, most of her life, and she just moved in the area. And I said, I asked her a simple question. Well, has anybody ever showed you from the Bible how you can know that today, if you die, you'd have a home in heaven? And she said, yeah, you, you can show me. And I showed her. And after I shared that with her, now she'd been in church her entire life. I said, has anybody ever showed you that from the Bible? She said, no. So whatever the church, and look, I don't know what the church is, but the truth is that's the truth of many churches. The truth is not known. The truth is not proclaimed. And so you wonder what they're doing. And the truth is it may not be a purposeful thing, but nonetheless, many people are deceived. This last year, I was downtown Wilmington. We were doing some street evangelism. I met some two young people who were sitting at the bus, bus stop, and I, I walked up to them, and I asked them if they were Christians, if they knew that, uh, uh, that their sins had been forgiven, and they both told me that they were baptized, and they mentioned a church that's right outside of my neighborhood. And I said, you've been baptized. That, that's wonderful. Well, 
but uh, the more important than your baptism, do you know that you're going to heaven? That your sins have been forgiven? He said, we don't know. And so I said, well, why were you baptized? Because we were told to. So now there is uh, some form of religion there, but they're lost. And so, what do we have the opportunity to do when we obey? To confront the deceiver. There are many people who are deceived. And so it gives us an opportunity to confront the deceiver. We see here, secondly, that they had an opportunity to comfort the desirous. Now, I I made this point here to comfort the desirous. Uh, If you notice here in our text in verse 7, the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, the Bible says he was a prudent man. He, He called for Barnabas and Saul, and notice, and desired to hear the word of God. So there's a desire here. In other words, they, they've gone out, they've, they've preached, and so the deputy thinks to himself, well, there, there's something that they're saying, I want to hear what they have to say. In other words, remember, the sorcerer is right there. The sorcerer is a man who is deceived, a man who has some measure has performed miracles. Uh, early on, if you go back to Acts chapter 8, you remember the sorcerer Simon? The Bible says something about him. Notice in Acts chapter 8 and verse 9. Acts 8 verse 9, the Bible says, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. So people, when they looked at the Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, they thought, that's the power of God. Look at what he's doing. And yet when Philip came and he preached the word of God, the people said, that's what we need. What does that tell us about the sorcerer? It did not meet the people's needs. And so here, the sorcerer, he is standing beside this deputy. And evidently, the deputy here, he, there's something missing in his life. In other words, the sorcerer has been all along, no doubt performing miracles, no doubt bewitching the people, deceiving the people, thinking that what he is doing is the power of God, but somewhere along the line, it's left the deputy empty to when he hears that the word of God is being preached, he says, I want to hear that. And the truth is, there are people who are thirsting and they're hungry for something. And so when we obey the Lord, then what, uh, what opportunity opens up to us is that we have the opportunity to comfort the desirous, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty for something that they haven't found all of their lives. And it can be found in Jesus Christ. I've given the illustration before. I did a series um, early on on uh, churches who have perverted the gospel of Christ. And, and I addressed uh, uh, for a while... The, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and um, somebody emailed me because they, it was a Catholic priest, and they emailed me because they, I guess, watched, probably not the whole thing, but part of it. So they were offended, and, and they emailed me and said, well, uh, uh, I used to be a Baptist preacher, and now I'm in the Catholic faith, and we went back and forth, and he, he mentioned that I had misrepresented the Catholic faith, and so I, I said, well, I just quoted from the Catechism, and if you read the videos, everything is, is outlined, uh, footnote, everything is listed here. I've not made anything up. I've not misrepresented anything, 
And uh, back and forth in conversation, I just asked him just plainly, I said, well, uh, how does a person have eternal life? How is a person saved? And so uh, through the process of time here, back and forth, I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to keep going back and forth. It doesn't seem to be productive. But he sent me one more email and he said this. I think he told me this. You're missing something. Because when I found the Catholic Church, I found everything I needed. And I thought to myself, well, that's just a wide open door. And this is what I emailed him back. I found everything I needed in Jesus Christ. That's the difference. You see, Jesus Christ is everything I need. He is the one that has satisfied. He is the one that has been the propitiation for my sin. He is the one that has reconciled me to God. And He is the one today by whom I seek to live by. And He has met all my needs. You see, I don't need a religion. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, uh, uh, the deputy is, he is desirous to hear the word of God. Notice, whatever the sorcerer has been providing him has not met the need. And by the way, Acts 8 makes us very clear that sorcerers had some type of power or some type of miracles. It could be the devil's power and the devil's miracles in sorceries. But it did not meet the longing of the soul. And so we see here the obedience, we see the opportunity, but then we see thirdly the obstruction. So verse 8, But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, and said, O full of all subtility and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking uh, some to lead him by the hand. So obedience, opportunity, but then obstruction when we obey the Lord and we have opportunity expect obstruction and opposition it's going to happen so well pastor I thought if I just obeyed God then everything would go smoothly not so I want you to notice several things about this obstruction first of all we see what obstruction is Notice verse 8. We see what obstruction is. The Bible says here that the sorcerer withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. So here we see what obstruction is. What is it? Well, the Bible says he withstood them. The word withstood here means to stand against, to oppose, to resist. And so now it seems evident as we read our text that the, the, deputy, or the, the deputy had the sorcerer in his ear, and he basically, as, they were, as uh, the deputy was hearing the word of God by Paul and Barnabas, the sorcerer was like, yeah, no, that's, they're lying to you. This is not right. They're trying to deceive you. Trust me. You've seen what I've been able to do. I know how I, I, know how I can discern people. What they're saying is not true. It couldn't be true. You don't know these people. They're strangers to you. 
Whatever he did, he withstood them. He, he stood against, he, he opposed, he resisted them. The Bible says, notice, he turned away, to turn away from the faith. The expression turn away means to distort, to misinterpret, to corrupt, to pervert, to misrepresent. So here's the sorcerer in the ear of the deputy, distorting, misinterpreting, misrepresenting, perverting what is being said by Barnabas and Saul. Well, by the way, that's still going on today. You see, obstruction is, right, the Word of God is the truth. The Word of God is the truth. We have the truth. And what happens in the world? How does obstruction come? Obstruction is the opposition, the standing against, the opposing, the resisting, the distorting, the misrepresenting, the misinterpreting, the perverting of the truth. And that's still going on today. So we see what obstruction is, but also we see what obstruction does. Now notice here with me in verse 9. So Saul who is also called Paul, and by the way, from this time on, he's going to be called Paul in the book of Acts. Up to this point, we've seen him called Saul, and now we're going to see him, uh, for after this account, he's going to be called Paul. We see that in verse 13 and 16 and so on. So notice here, he was filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Now, that would be a staring. Staring. He set his eyes on him. That's what it means, to set to be unmoved. That's staring. All right? Don't stare at people. Right? Children. We, we say that to children all the time. We stop at the red line and the children are like, it's like, don't look at people. You can say hi, but don't stare at them. And so I would imagine here the scene deputy, a position of authority. I don't know if it was an office or a public court, but he is sitting there listening to Paul and Barnabas. The sorcerer right, right beside him. He is an influence and counsel to him whispering in his ear, contending against the gospel, contending against the word of God. And he's, as he's talking to the deputy, I can see Paul, who has been talking to the deputy, look right at the sorcerer. Staring at him. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop, st- stop doing that. And what he's going to say to him, verse 10, notice, and he said this, And here's what we know about what obstruction does. Notice what Paul says. And this is not, again, the Bible says in the verse before, he was full of the Holy Ghost. This is not personal insult towards a man. This is under the inspiration of God, saying exactly what God wants him to say, and so this is for us. How does obstruction, what does obstruction do? Notice verse 10. Oh, full of all subtility and all mischief. Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? So here we see what obstruction does. Notice in your, in your notes, first of all, it deceives to keep mankind ignorant. It deceives to keep mankind ignorant. You see what he says? He says to the sorcerer, full of all subtility and mischief. In in other words, the word of God is the truth. And here he is subtle. He is 
putting lies into the, the ears of the, uh, of the deputy. He is trying to deceive him into believing. He is trying to, to keep him ignorant of the gospel of the truth. You see, that's what obstruction does in, in the world. That's what it always does. It deceives to keep mankind ignorant about the truth of God and His Word. Subtility, obviously, is what is described of Satan when he came in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. He came in subtility. He deceived Eve into believing a lie. He made it seem as if she had been missing something. And so we see it deceives to keep mankind ignorant. But notice he says, he calls him, he says, thou child of the devil. Now what does that mean here? So first of all, what does obstruction do? It deceives to keep mankind ignorant. But secondly, it glorifies to keep mankind on the throne. You see, he, he calls the sorcerer child of the devil. What does that mean when you say child of the devil? It means you do exactly what your father does. You do exactly what the devil does. Well, what has the devil always done? Well, from the very beginning, the Bible describes that he was lifted up with pride. He thought himself that he could ascend, be like the Most High. He thought he could be God. You remember when he came to Eve, he told Eve, he says, he says, you, you can be as God, knowing good and evil. You can be elevated. You can be just like God. And so here Paul looks at the sorcerer. He says, you're a child of the devil. You're trying to glorify mankind, to keep mankind on the throne. And so the sorcerer was saying, hey, a deputy, you know better. You have better judgment than this. You, you, you don't have to listen to these people that you do not know. You don't have to listen to their message. You can make yourself God. That's the deception of the devil. You don't need God. All you need is you. Trust in yourself. Be your own God. You see, that's what obstruction does. It keeps mankind, deceives to keep mankind ignorant. It glorifies to keep mankind on the throne. But notice he says, Thou enemy of all righteousness. Now the word here that we think about is the word enemy. That means here, what does obstruction do? It injures to keep the truth dead. You see, he says, Thou enemy of all righteousness. What's the word enemy mean? Well, if you have an enemy, the enemy is trying to put you to death. The enemy is trying to crush you. Trying to fight against you. Fighting against what? Notice here what he's fighting against. Righteousness. Well, that's the word of God, isn't it? That we can be made righteous in Jesus Christ. That we can be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so here the sorcerer comes as the enemy. He's trying to destroy. He's trying to put the truth of God's word to death. He's trying to injure. So in his subtlety he's trying to twist. Misrepresent. We read that earlier. Misrepresent. Misinterpret. Mischaracterize what is being said. And so he's listening for anything that is said by Paul and Barnabas. So they can use it and twist it against them. So that the uh, deputy... Uh, uh, sees the, the truth as being injured and dead and non-effective. You know, the wonderful thing, though, about the truth is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And despite how great the influence the sorcerer has up to this point, despite all the power that he has, he can do nothing to stop the Word of God. Amen. Absolutely nothing. And then there's one more thing that obstruction does. It distorts to keep mankind confused. He says, verse 9, 
Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? You know, that's exactly what the devil did. Has God said? Wait a minute. Began with a little doubt, confusion. And then he saw it as an opportunity and said, Thou shalt not surely die. But he, he tries to confuse. He, he tries to put doubt. And so here, evidently, Paul knew what he was doing. He was trying to pervert the word of God. The right ways of the Lord. And so here we see what obstruction is, what obstruction does, but also we see how obstruction ends here in our text. Notice verse 10, or verse, uh, verse 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And, and by the way, how gracious of God not to strike him dead. Do you notice here he says, blind for a season? You know what that means? You're going to be blind for a little bit. So you can, so you can think about what you're doing. So you can think about what you've heard. And so you can pause. How gracious and merciful God is. Even to this man who opposed the truth. And I, I've heard from many of you, you used to oppose the truth of God. And then you accepted it. God has been gracious and merciful. We see here, the Bible says, And immediately there fell on him a, a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. So here, the deputy was in a position of authority and power. People regarded him as that. He was counselor to the deputy, and now he's blind. And you see him? Can somebody help me? What is that picture of? The blind leading the blind. You see, that's what characterizes the world. The blind leading the blind. You see, can, can somebody help me? I don't know if you've ever been in a dark place, but it's, it's not a pleasant thing. Remember, we went to a, a cave and then they said, all right, now we're going to shut off all the lights in the cave. And it was so dark, you couldn't even see the, your hand in front of your face. There's a moment of trepidation. You, you think about the bats running around. You can't see. You can't defend yourself. You can't see anything. It, it makes you for just a few moments disoriented. You don't even know if you're standing up straight anymore. And so just in a moment, it's, it's complete darkness and he needs help. He needs somebody to guide him and to help him. And so that's how obstruction ends. God... Uh, just gives us a, an illustration of really who the sorcerer is. He was a blind man leading blind men. And by the way, this is, as I mentioned, not the first time we have seen a sorcerer in Acts. The first was in chapter 8, verse 9 and 11, with Simon the sorcerer. Uh, remember, uh, the Bible says in chapter 8 that they had regard for him, that because for a long time he had bewitched them with his sorceries. So evidently the sorcerers commanded the attention and the respect of people. However, it seems clear that here the power, be careful here, the power of God's word was stronger than these men. Amen. You say, well, well, no, no, no. He was struck blind. 
God did some, some miracle, and, and, and that's what was stronger than him. No, let's read the next verse, which brings us to the last point. So we see here the obedience, the opportunity, the obstruction, and lastly, we see the outcome. Notice verse 12. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now please be careful, take careful note of what convinced the deputy. He saw what was done to the sorcerer. However, Scripture tells us that the deputy, he believed, here it is, here's the reason, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. In other words, I would think here, you, he just saw a miracle. This, blind, this sorcerer now has been struck with blindness. He's been led by the hand outside of the court. And so now uh, we, we might think, wow, the deputy is like, wow, what a miracle. No, he said, what a doctrine. That's amazing. I've never heard anything like this. The Bible says he believed. The word astonished literally means to be amazed. It means basically to strike someone with astonishment. What struck the deputy? Was it the fact that the sorcerer was smitten with, black, with, with darkness, blindness? No, it was the doctrine of the Lord. You see, there is something about the doctrine of the Lord that amazed the deputy, and it is something so amazing. Think about it. It is something so amazing. Whatever they were preaching, it was something so amazing that even the miracle did not impact the deputy as much as the message. So if there's a great miracle taking place, how much greater, once again, is the message that we preach? That the miracles serve to elevate the message above it. And what's the message? It's the message of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. And He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What did He do on the cross? The Bible says, God hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He died in our place. Colossians tells us He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the tree. And so all of the sins in my life can be gone away by faith in Jesus Christ. And so the deputy says, that's the message? That's the Word of God. That's the doctrine. It's amazing. So there's a simple question. Have we lost our zeal for that message? The gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. Yep. So Romans 1.16 says, Yes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yep. At what point have we ceased to be amazed? You see, we, we live in a world and we might think, Pastor, if only God could just kind of shake hold of America. Get people's attention. If God just, maybe just in a cloud, just like audibly speak and, and say something to get everybody's attention. So you know the greatest thing to get people's attention today? 
is the preaching of the Word of God. The Word of God can do what miracles cannot. What the world needs is not miracles. They need the Word of God. You see, there's something exciting about what happened there in Acts. And my prayer is that we as a church would be able to have the zeal and to recapture as we speak with boldness the Word of God to where people are just like, wow, that's just amazing. That's just phenomenal. I can't believe this. To be struck with amazement. That's what the Word of God can do. Oh yes, it can be called the foolishness of preaching by the world. But nonetheless, to them which are saved, it is the power of God. The power still works. God still has power. His Word has still power. And we've got to hold it in our hands and proclaim the power of God. And so may the Lord help us as a church to be faithful in, in just recapturing that first century passion for the Word of God. Paul, let's go with Paul. Paul, invite us in. How did you do it, Paul? Tell us, was there a system? How did you do How, how did you... How did you start churches all over? How, how did you become, perhaps apart from Christ, the greatest missionary that ever lived? He said, right, come here. Let me show you. If you preach and teach the Word of God, God will do the rest. Right. It's got to be more than that. No, no. We have the book of Acts right here. Do we not? He said, well, Pastor, we don't have the miracles today. I'm glad you said that. They didn't need them. Remember? What was he astonished at? Not the miracle. The doctrine. If only we could go back. No, no. If only we could move forward today. Not live in the past. The past is validating, no doubt. But it should infuse us with the zeal to do the same work today.